everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we get into the podcast, a word from the sponsors of this episode, Chargebee. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS and subscription startups, such as Hopin, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is particularly powerful for European startups to navigate complex issues such as tax compliances, invoicing, and billing regulations. The product also enables you to experiment with different pricing models and also to localize the pricing and checkout experiences. So check them out at chargebee.com. And now let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Dr. Tim Gillians, co-founder and CEO of Helix, a UK-based AI drug development company focused on rare diseases. Rare disease patients have long been sidelined by the pharmaceutical industry who struggle to justify investment in treatments to very small populations. Dr. Tim, along with Dr. David Brown, the co-inventor of Viagra, co-founded Helix in 2014 with the idea of applying AI and machine intelligence techniques to matching existing approved drugs to the treatment of rare diseases, thereby drastically reducing the time and cost needed to develop these treatments. So far, Helix has raised about $67 million in total funding. Most recently, the company closed a Series B round of funding of $56 million from investors such as Atomico, Balderton Capital, and several others. I'm delighted to have Tim on the show. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Anita. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So you started the company in 2014 after finishing your PhD from Cambridge. Tell me about how you decided to focus on rare diseases. The, the person who inspired us to set up the company is a rare disease parent called Nick Siro. When we met him in 2014, Nick was trying to repurpose the components of a weed killer to save his children. And he was doing this in an incredibly innovative way. And that compound actually has now been approved by the European Medicines Agency. So this has been a, a massive success. But when Nick started, he was being told by the medical profession that there were no treatments available, that he should enjoy the next few years with his children. And he didn't take no for an answer. He went on a mission to find a treatment and succeeded. So for us, this is where we realized that Nick wasn't alone. You have 7,000 rare diseases, 95% don't have an approved treatment. This impacts more than 400 million patients worldwide. Just to give you an idea of, of size, that's larger than the population of the United States. So try to imagine it. And if you want to do something about it, you have to approach it in a different way. Apply AI machine learning to that problem is when we met Nick and understood what he was trying to do, that we realized that we wanted to do something about it and apply machine learning to do this at scale. For those of us who are not from this world, can you define what rare disease means? Rare disease is actually defined by the prevalence. In the US, it's defined as less than one in 200,000 cases. I see. So AI is not new. Machine learning is not new. You have these pharmaceutical companies with huge amounts of money that can figure out how to get drugs for these rare diseases. So what is it about what you're doing? Why has this never been done before? And what is different about how you're approaching drug discovery? That's a really important question. Basically, we have to take a, a step back first. You have 7,000 rare diseases, 95% 
don't have an approved treatment. Also, if you look at the industry overall, only 5% of the programs actually are successful. All the rest fail. So there's a fundamental question around how did we get here? We, we have a broken drug discovery process where it takes 10 to 15 years to develop a new treatment, two to three billion dollars per new drug in average. So how did we get here? We got here because the traditional drug discovery paradigm, which is called target-based, was overly simple. And that was based on one disease, one target, one drug. But actually, human biology is much more complicated than that. We have more than 22,000 genes who gets upregulated, downregulated, more than 8,000 metabolic reactions. And so coming up with a, a paradigm where you try and hit one specific target into tens of thousands of things is just too simple. And that's what broke drug discovery. We're here to pioneer the next generation of drug discovery that's AI-powered, much more holistic and combinatorial. We're trying to match the right drug or drug combination to the right patient or disease. And if you look at combinations of two or three existing treatments, you have more than 10 billion possibilities per disease. So this is a really complex problem where you need a machine learning approach to select the, the right one. What are the trends you're seeing in the space, both currently and what you think you will see in the future? What is accelerating this high amount of investment in health tech these days? There's something happening right now in our space. And there's a number of, of reasons for that. If we take a step back, this is there's really a, a paradigm shift. So originally, drug discovery was called phenotypic-based drug discovery. You developed a drug, you put it in a model, you didn't know how it worked, but it worked. Aspirin is actually a great example. It works, but nobody knows how it works. After that, you have the second generation of drug discovery that was basically target-based. That's what I described earlier. And now you have the next generation of drug discovery. And and there's three factors that contribute to that. The first one is your new disease biology, your biology 2.0. That's your genome, your transcriptome, your proteome, your metabolome, and the list continues. So now you have all this new information on disease to really understand a disease profile or patient profile in different way. Next, you have the advances in data science, machine learning, AI, where you can start applying that to your new biology. Thirdly is the availability of, of capital in our space, where last year alone, there was $14 billion of investment in AI and drug discovery. And, and there's a few reasons for why our space is exploding now, because of the new biology and the applications of machine learning to that. But also, I think, COVID really emphasized the importance of health, the importance of developing treatments in a different way, at a different scale, at a different speed. So a lot of things were accelerated because of that. But also, I think the mindset of the regulators also changed because they also realized 
okay, if we want to do something about COVID, we cannot wait 10 to 15 years until there's a new treatment developed. We have to move very fast. We need to come up with different ways of structuring clinical trials, etc. That's good news for a lot of people in health tech, these new trends accelerated by COVID. Okay. When you started the company a few years back, you took in very little investment. You'd bootstrapped the company for the first few years. Was that a deliberate strategy you took? Can you talk to me about those early days? When thinking about the early days, there was less of a very strong, deliberate strategy around our fundraising. We were basically passionate about what we're trying to solve, passionate about our mission, and we're just going to do something about it and and give it a good go. And so we bootstrapped the first four years. And then things changed significantly. At the very beginning, we decided to say no to a couple of investment offers because we felt the investors were not in line with the mission of the company, what we're trying to achieve. Those were quite hard decisions to to make at the time, but definitely looking back, they were the, the right decision. But then how did you recruit the talent you needed in those early days? It's such a expensive proposition to do drug discovery. How did you manage to do the things you needed to do when you were bootstrapping? Our secret weapon is basically the mission of the company. So we always managed to attract incredible talent of people who wanted to apply their skills to something that made a difference. And you can go and work for Facebook developing, you know, new ads, <laughs> but I think you get less of a sense of purpose and fulfillment. Because we started with our disease mission, trying to apply tech for good, I think this is a brilliant example of where technology can have an impact and it's win-win-win. It's win for the patients, it's win for the shareholders, it's win for the healthcare systems. I think this was part of our competitive advantage to hire in the early days, but also attract exceptional investors who want to deploy capital to have an impact and, and make a difference. I have to ask you about Dr. David Brown. I mean, he invented Viagra. He was a big name. He's obviously made himself a lot of money. Why did he want to join Helix? How did you make that happen? A friend of mine was working on another startup around Cambridge and he understood what I was trying to do and so made the introduction. What's beautiful about a place like Cambridge is there's so much going on. There's amazing research happening at the university and and research institutions. But between that, you have also more than 5,000 tech startups. Biotech startups is incredibly vibrant community. And so there's a lot of introductions, it's kind of serendipity of people you meet and you need a bit of luck when you're starting a new company. When meeting Dave, he just understood straight away what I had in mind, was trying to do. He invented drugs in total, which turned over $40 billion in revenue. He was global head of drug discovery at Roche, where he was managing more than 2,000 scientists. When we met, he was retired. Then he was unfortunate enough to meet me. (laughs) And he just got so excited by the potential, right? Because now you have the data, you have the machine learning, all of those things where he knew the process was broken. But uh, until a few years ago, you didn't have an opportunity to really redefine the fundamental drug discovery paradigm, move away from this one disease one target, one drug, which was just too simple. And so he accepted to become chairman of the company, 
was then also our chief scientific officer. And before I knew it, it was full time. Wow, that is really cool. Uh, I'm sure that's one of those moments that you really cherish in the journey with Helix. What about mistakes that you made or what would you do differently if you thought about those early days before you got a whole slosh of uh, capital? Thinking back to, to the early days, I think we actually got a lot right and we were just comfortable getting things wrong and changing decisions. I think understanding what you know and don't know is important. And we were actually very comfortable and, and created a culture where it was okay to be wrong. And this was particularly around investment offers and, and finding the right investors. I think what would have been a, a big mistake was to accept money from investors that were not aligned with the culture we're trying to build, with the mission of the company. And so in that sense, I think we were very lucky. We avoided some of those classic mistakes that are very difficult to reverse. The investor and selecting the investors has come up a, a few times now. Tell me, what is your thought process in terms of how do you select the right investors? You said you turned down some investors. Why did you turn them down? And what should founders look for in the right investor for them? This is one of the most uh, important decisions you'll make because it's rarely reversible. You need to look at your investors like late co-founders, like people who join your team, who are going to roll up their sleeves, who are going to be a strategic partner into you, an operational partner, and also believe in the culture and values that you believe in. And so what's really important is to do your due diligence on your investors. Ask other startup founders about feedback, but also ask your investors or prospective investors to introduce you to some of their portfolio companies. What you also need to ask is if they can introduce you to portfolio companies that didn't go well. Because what's really important for you is to understand how they behave when things don't go to plan. So you have your good days, you have your bad days, and on the good days, it's very easy for everyone to align and there's no problem. But then understanding how they behave during the bad days, that's really important because some investors will throw the founders under the bus at the, the first wobble. And, and you want people who are really supportive, who can help you go through the ups and downs. So that's one of the most important decisions you'll make. I love that. Ask your investors to introduce you to companies that failed in their portfolio. Let's fast forward to 2018 and 2019. In 2018, you raised your Series A for 10 million. And then in 2019, your Series B for 56 million. Why did you raise Series B so quickly after Series A? Why didn't you just raise a larger Series A? So we had bootstrapped for four years raised about two and a half million in those four years, which is very little, particularly if you enjoy discovery. And then we got some inbound interest and also amazing results. So we were starting to get the first results of our AI predictions. Things were going to work, it started to work because it takes some investment first. First, there's more concepts you believe in. You don't have a lot of tangible things that you can point at, but we were just getting one good result after the other. And so we got uh, inbound interest to then do a, a Series A round first, which was uh, 10 million. At that time, we had different term sheets. 
and decided to go with Balderton Capital, who were really amazing. They weren't the people giving us the highest valuation. And that's important, right? It's not just about the dilution and the amount of capital. It's really about the fit you have with your investors, about how much value they can add beyond the capital. We did very, very thorough investor due diligence with all the people in their network. And, and that worked out super well. And then within 11 months, we then also had a signed term sheet for Series B, which was 56 million. And that was also based on inbound interest. But then within a year, we raised $66 million. So we were scaling at a different uh, pace. I can't even imagine going from bootstrapping to then having close to $70 million in the bank. How did that shift your mindset? How did you go from working in a certain way, which is very bootstrapped, to now having to think very differently and at massive scale? Can you talk to me about what adjustments you had to make and how did you have to think about operating the company? When I look back at my role around the company, there's almost three phases. So at the beginning, you're basically a founder, you're bootstrapping, then you raise a bit of money, you're a startup CXO, you're still bootstrapping, and then you're a scale-up CXO. And, and so your role and responsibilities actually dramatically change. And I think the, the biggest change is when you go from startup CXO to scale-up CXO. And I'm saying CXO because it doesn't matter if you're the CEO, CTO, COO, any other fancy title you'll, you'll get in an early stage startup. But those, those are really distinct phases. And so the way you make decisions really change quite significantly the way you align. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that alignment and decision-making works? in each of those phases? I think for the first two, you, you don't have a lot of cash in the bank, but your business is very simple. You can still talk to everyone on the same day. You can reverse a decision on the same day. Everybody knows about everyone else and what's going on. The kind of alignment is not really a thing. You're always aligned. You're a small team, but there's no money in the bank. So the level of innovation and being smart about how you're going to win, how you're going to find shortcuts is really important. But then when you're in scale-up mode or scale-up CXO, then the, the alignment decision-making really changes. It's not more than 100 people. And so we've set up a, a bit more process in place. So we have now quarterly cycles where we review the strategic priorities, objectives, cross-functional teams to deliver those. And, and we try not to distract people too much within a quarter so that people can really focus do some good work. And of course, if something comes up, we have to adapt. What I'm trying to tell the team is, okay, decision over process, right? Your process is there to help you make a quality decision faster. If it's a bottleneck for a good decision, get rid of the process or bypass the process. I think this applies across starters, but I think in scale-up mode, you have to be more comfortable to bypass the process that you maybe have put in place because it's either holding you back in startup mode. There's no processes that can hold you back, but sometimes maybe you need a bit more processes to get you to the scale-up mode. Which stage did you enjoy? I enjoyed the beginning stage. You roll up your sleeve. You do things yourself. Now I get more fulfillment by seeing other people doing the interesting stuff. And it's kind of this shift 
in mindset that if someone else can do it or do it better than you, by default, they should do it. We need to apply that because you don't have a choice, but we need to avoid this kind of delegating mentality. So everybody needs to be able to roll up their sleeves and get shit done. But it's very different in startup mode or scale mode. What has been the hardest thing about scaling? I think the hardest thing about scaling is that suddenly every activity or function explodes at the same time. And you can see this in the people or HR function. Suddenly you're trying to hire potentially 50 new people every quarter. So there's the onboarding, there's the induction, there's the interview. When you're 15 people and you're trying to grow from 15 to 20, you could just do more of the same. So it's, it's trying to manage that and then be comfortable that nobody has the answers for your company. And so at the beginning, you get a lot of comfort from other people, the startups, mentors, coaches, but actually you're getting to a stage where you have to figure it out yourself or with the team. And, and there's probably no one out there who knows exactly what's going to work for Helix. I think the, the biggest mistake you can make is to apply the playbook from another company blindly to your startup and making your own judgment around what's going to work. For us, what's really hard is we're a hybrid between a tech company and a biotech company. So we can't just apply the biotech playbook because every biotech has always done it that way or blindly the tech playbook because it's not what's going to work for us. And then be comfortable that the answer is probably not out there and that we have to make it up ourselves and, and create inventing our own solutions. Must be stressful, Tim, to have all this expectation. You're a first-time founder. You have all this money, priorities, people that you've hired at an incredible speed. And then you have to constantly be in this problem-solving mode and decision-making mode in areas that you probably don't have the same depth of experience that you need. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with making decisions in areas where you don't have the experience and just stress in general? I'll start with the stress in, in general. I think I was quite lucky. My other half, she's a yoga teacher, used to be a primary school teacher. So I think kind of helped to get a more balanced view and then trying to do some sports, finding the right balance. And that's very, very hard while scaling. I think you're going to be a much better leader, a much better person contributing to society if you're more balanced. We have a three-year-old, um, the proud father of, of a baby daughter now, six weeks old. So there's a number of things that change. And of course, sometimes it's stressful, but also it's a privilege to be able to work with so amazing people to try and solve such an important problem and, and this mission we're passionate about, having investment and capital. When you have the occasional wobble, this sense of purpose is so important. is your health, your close family and friends, and then purpose. Those are three things that are so important. And I just feel so fortunate. And of course, there's some headaches. It's not a walk through the park, but I think it helps you uh, struggle well. I think you said that really nicely. Your health, your family, and your purpose. And it's making sure that there is a balance. And maybe there are certain times when one takes a little bit more priority over the other. But in general, if you can balance those three, I'm sure it's really difficult and challenging to do that. My hat's off to entrepreneurs like you who are able to do that because I'm sure it's really tough. Is there anything else I should have asked you about 
Helix and, and your journey so far. Maybe you can talk to me quickly about where you're going next and, and what you would like to see Helix be able to accomplish before we end this part of the podcast. I think we, we want to have a rare disease impact at scale. So where do you want to be in five years, 10 years? We want to be able to have identified treatments for 50, 100, potentially more rare diseases, having convinced late stage investors to back companies like Helix, who have been so fortunate so far. We're continuing to grow the team. We know more than 100 people. I think we'll continuing to grow until 300 people and probably after that. And I think what's important is there's never been a more exciting time for rare disease patients because now you have those new AI technologies, you have this new disease biology. There is now mission-driven investors who want to deploy capital in things that make a difference. And what's important is that those patient communities they're being considered now as true partners. They are the experts. For every project we have, we always have a patient group partnership. And that's a big change, right? In, in the traditional pharma industry, your patients are basically a, a sample for your clinical trial. They know about their disease. They are your sense of purpose. We, we hire people who have rare diseases. And so I think it's just an incredibly exciting time for rare disease patients and communities. Very cool, Tim. So that's the formal part of the podcast. I have a quick rapid round before I let you go. And usually it starts with, what's your favorite book? I have a number of favorite books, but actually there's one that I think is worth reading. And it's called The The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. (laughs) And we give like we really care. But I think the psychology behind that where help you to actually struggle well, understand, okay, what is worth my time and headspace and worry and what's not worth my time, headspace and worry. And so that's called the, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. I love it. First, I'm going to read it and then I think I'm going to recommend it. What about a productivity tip or hack? Something that you do or you use that keeps you productive? Start with the bigger picture. What is strategically important? What are those strategic decisions and what is the unique value that you can add? Start with that, structure your week and then add the rest. And you won't be able to add everything else of the rest. But you know what? It's okay because you've already focused on where you can add unique value and on what's strategically really important. Such an insightful answer to focus on, not just what's strategically important, but about what is it that you can uniquely add value to versus having someone else do it who might even do better than you. What about a favorite European city? So I have a bit of a bias. So I used to live in Spain and one of my favorite cities there is is Barcelona for a number of, of reasons. So there's amazing research there. There's amazing food. You're close to the beach, you're close to the mountains. I just love it. Hopefully, maybe one day I'll be able to to live there. I think this is really one of my favorite cities in uh, Europe. You can't imagine the number of founders when I ask them their favorite European city. It's always somewhere in Portugal and somewhere in Spain. Okay, what about a favorite quote? One that um, is quite topical right now is progress, not perfection, and decision over process. And it's just something that I try to repeat to the team because as we scale, 
there's a lot of processes and things that we put in place, but also the good judgment of, okay, is this helping us move forward? Is this helping us make a good decision faster? If the answer is no, get rid of the process and just make the decision. Wow. Phenomenal. I can just tell Tim from the answers, the journey that you yourself have been on and the growth that you probably have seen as a founder, as an entrepreneur. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on my podcast. Tim, thank you so much for being on my show today. Pleasure. Thank you, Anita. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.